Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Michelle Procino Wells, one of the attorneys at PWW Law, and I'm joined today by another one of our attorneys, Amber Woodland. We're excited to talk about uh, revocable living trusts today. So, Amber, you ready? Let's get started. I'm ready. (laughs) All right. So, revocable trusts. um, Gosh, we have created so many revocable trusts over the years, and people are often so um, intrigued about revocable trusts. You know, what are the advantages? Are there disadvantages? You know, why do we recommend them? What do they look like? So, let's break that down today. So I know that you love to talk about trust like a box. I do. (laughs) So how about if you, you want to give us a uh, kind of a overview of trust and sort of that whole uh, box analogy. Sure. Yeah, I do. I talk about trust all the time, every day in terms of boxes, because I think it makes it most relatable. People can understand that if you sign a legal document called a trust, you're creating a box. And if you put assets inside of that box, then the terms of the trust are going to control it. But in the most basic form, a revocable trust is a written legal document. It's a lot like a will. And a trust is intended in this context to take the place oftentimes of a traditional will because it says, who do you want to oversee your affairs upon your incapacity or death? And then how do you want your assets to pass upon death? A trust, though, is so beneficial as opposed to a traditional will because when used properly, it will avoid probate. And that's because the assets are in the box. It's it's able to still continue owning those assets even when in the individual who created the trust passes away. And therefore, the probate or that formal process following a person's death can be avoided completely. Absolutely. So yeah, we always, I like to talk about trusts as being a replacement for a traditional will and that they basically do the same thing that a will does. They just do it better, better, better mm-hmm. and more efficiently and more privately. And so we'll, we'll get into all of that. But if you would talk about this concept of revocable versus irrevocable. Sure. So if you go to Google and you type trust into Google, you're going to get millions and millions of hits because there's so many different types of trust. We're talking today specifically about a revocable trust which is one that you can put in place and you have the ability to completely revoke it at any time while you still have capacity to do so. You also have the ability to change the terms of the trust so it can be amended. You're also retaining control of the trust. So if I create a trust, I'm going to be my own trustee. So I'm still going to be in control of the assets inside of a revocable trust. So it's done specifically for an end-of-life probate avoidance tool there's really no other reason to create a revocable trust besides that. But there are irrevocable trusts too, and it's good to compare and contrast the two. So an irrevocable trust, it's a legal document, black words on a piece of paper, just like a revocable trust. But if we're going to use the box as the analogy, an irrevocable trust is a box that we put an asset or assets into, we shut the lid and we set it aside. That trust is typically going to be managed by someone besides the creator of the trust. We're going to name someone else to serve as trustee in that management role. And in our practice, we use irrevocable trust primarily for asset protection purposes. And we're going to have a whole separate episode about protecting assets from the cost of long-term care, utilizing irrevocable trust. But it's important to know the distinction. And we have some clients who have both revocable and irrevocable trust. There's a time and a place for both. 
So you mentioned the trustee multiple times. So if you would talk about the role of trustee, can you serve as your own trustee? Who should you name as trustee? successors, concurrent, you know, all of that. Sure. So when a person creates a revocable trust, in most cases, they are going to be their own trustee initially. So out of the gate, I create a trust, I'm going to be my own trustee. So any assets that I put in that box, I'm going to control and manage. If my bank account's in there, I'm still going to use my account like I always would. But then I'm going to name someone to serve as my successor trustee. So if I become incapacitated or I pass away, I'm going to pick the right person for the job (laughs) to step in and serve as my backup trustee. And you're going to hear us talk about the right person for the job in every context with every legal document that we create for the families we serve. It's so important to choose a trustee who is prudent, who's responsible, who's on top of things, who's task oriented, and who's going to act consistent with your overall estate plan and your wishes. And so sometimes that is the oldest child, but not always. It's sometimes the child who lives the closest, but not always. And so it's all about making sure that we're picking a trustee based on their skill set, not because of any other reason, because being trustee is a job and we want to make sure that we've got the right person in that position. There's opportunity to name more than one trustee. So if I create a trust, I could name myself as trustee along with someone else who could serve at the same time. We do that sometimes as our clients age, they create a trust and maybe they have a child who's starting to help them with their finances. They can name a co-trustee, someone who can act with them. There's also opportunity when you're naming successor trustees to maybe name multiple children or multiple nieces and nephews or multiple trusted people who are going to serve in that trustee role. So there's concurrent authority where any one of the trustees has authority to act independently of everyone else. Then there's also joint authority. So it would require every trustee to do everything together, make every decision and take every action together every time. And that just creates a really nice checks and balance if there's any concern about who's acting. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to point out too, because we always go in our examples and and I do this too. We always talk about a person naming their children um, as their trustee or their agent or their executor, whatever the role is. And and so I just want to point out that, you know, Lots of folks who have children, and they might even be, you know, adult responsible children, choose not to name their children, or for folks who don't have children. Right. Um, you know, so again, you're always looking at the pool of people that you have to choose from. Some people will name professional trustees, mm-hmm. whether that's a bank or a trust company, their lawyer, their CPA, their financial advisor. Um, some professionals have, have limitations based on their professional ethics as to whether or not they can serve in that role. But I just wanted to add that that I think it's important for people to understand. Some clients, um, you know, and I always can appreciate this, you know, some are so determined to really try to avoid conflict and really streamline things for their families. And they don't want to put the burden on a family member because it's usually a pretty thankless job. <laughs> you know, people, oftentimes people are, are, are you know, they want to be appointed. And, and I think, wow, do you really realize like how much work you're going to have to do? During um, an otherwise emotional time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, it's really important. Again, it's it always goes back to who's best for the job and really taking a hard look at your 
people <laughs> and making that decision of whether they're they're because I'll tell you, and we we both have seen so many examples of when the wrong person is appointed, um, how that can really be a disaster and and can lead to you know really broken families, which is really unfortunate. So, so with this concept of the revocable trust, let's talk a little more in you know more detail about the advantages that the trust offers. So you mentioned about incapacity and how it can be used as an incapacity tool. And if you would um, maybe compare that to the power of attorney. Sure. So if we create a trust and we have assets inside of the trust, and then the person who created the trust later becomes incapacitated due to dementia, Parkinson's, coma, whatever the medical circumstances may be, there's going to be that successor trustee. So although the trust maker is still living, the trust maker is unable to manage the trust assets due to incapacity. That successor trustee steps in and starts managing the trust assets, but still for the benefit of the trust maker at that point. So it is a lot like a power of attorney. I think the distinction though is you need both. You need the revocable trust and you need the power of attorney because there's inevitably going to be things that need to be done that aren't related to the trust or there are going to be assets that aren't in the trust. That's when the power of attorney acts. So just by way of example, a retirement account like an IRA or a 401k is never going to be retitled in the name of a revocable trust. It's going to stay in an individual person's name. And that's for tax reasons. So if I have a trust and my real estate and my bank accounts are in my trust, but my 401k is still in my individual name, my trusted people need to have authority to access trust assets, which would be the successor trustee role, and then access the non-trust assets, which would be the 401k using the power of attorney. Absolutely. And that whole concept of the incapacity planning, you know, we see this oftentimes where people make mistakes with their planning. We call it one of the pitfalls where people will um, add other names to their accounts. They'll use jointly owned accounts as an estate planning tool. And that oftentimes is um, because you know, someone has suggested that to them. They're worried that if, um, you know, they, they become ill, who's going to pay my bills. Um, and so it's important to point out that trusts are a great solution for that as well, because of that successor trustee, where if you have that bank account titled in a trust name, that successor trustee can take over. Um, they don't have to be an owner on the account and get all the privileges that owner that come along with ownership, but yet they would be able to manage the account. So, you know, trusts have so many advantages, you know, and, and they're a really great solution to a lot of those other sort of pitfalls that we see. So I, another advantage of trust is increased privacy. So why don't you talk a little about that? Yeah. So a trust, it's that legal document. It's your words on a piece of paper that describes what you want to happen, but it never gets filed with public record anywhere. A will gets filed of public record with the Register of Wills office following your death. I call in the nosy neighbors. Anyone who's interested in seeing what your estate plan says can go and retrieve a copy of a will of public record, regardless of whether they're interested in the estate, a beneficiary of the estate or not. And so a lot of our clients love the privacy aspect that a trust offers because it's never going to be filed of public record. It's always going to be kept private. The only people who are entitled to even see the terms of a trust are the interested parties, which are the beneficiaries. If there is a, a situation where a person wants to disinherit a family member, doing that through a trust is so much more private than doing that through a will. And that disinherited family member doesn't even have standing to ask for a copy of the trust. And so it's maintaining privacy. And 
ideally avoiding a lot of potential conflict too. Right. I think that that's a great point that, you know, trust because it is, it isn't that public proceeding that with a will that probate is. So it also reduces the chance of people contesting. Right. Or if people, you know, during a, a, the probate process, you know, there's different opportunities where people can, you know, object and they can file exceptions and they can delay and they can cause and they increase attorney's fees and they make it whereas with a trust, you know, there's still certainly opportunity for those things. If the, you know, if the trustee isn't doing their job properly, there's certainly um, remedies for that. But because it's not a public process, you know, if there's somebody who really likes to stir the pot, um, they have less opportunity to do that with trust administration. So how about um, naming a trust as a beneficiary on assets like life insurance? Good idea? Always. <laughs> we use trust as beneficiaries all the time, and especially for life insurance. So if you have a life insurance policy, you are always asked to name a beneficiary. You would typically defer to people or individuals in those roles. So primary beneficiary and maybe contingent beneficiary. Well, when you create a trust and you have that box, you can actually make life insurance proceeds in this example payable to that box. So it comes into the box. It's managed and controlled by the successor trustee. It can be held in further trust according to the terms of that legal document. So I use a family who maybe has minor children as a great example in this context. We don't want life insurance going to the minor children. We want life insurance payable to the trust so that it can be managed for those minor minor children. And so whether there's minor children or not, we also like having the life insurance policy payable to the trust because we know the trust is always going to be there. It's always going to receive that life insurance payout. The risk with naming people is what if those people predecease you? and you forget to add another beneficiary, then there is no beneficiary named. The life insurance money has to be payable to the estate. It's subject to probate, and there's fees and publicity that goes along with that. So having a non-person, a trust, a box there to receive the life insurance has a ton of probate avoidance, risk protection features, and so routinely we make life insurance payable. There are other assets too that can be made payable by beneficiary designation to a trust. So sometimes we see transfer on death or payable on death on bank accounts or brokerage accounts. If they those accounts cannot be retitled in the name of the trust, then they could be payable to the trust with use of a beneficiary designation. So I, with this whole concept of the beneficiary designations too, I think it's important to point out that the trust is going to have, you know, we off, we often clients will say, why, gosh, why does it have to be so long? Why is there so much legal language in there? But I always call those the the suitcase provisions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you, you go on a trip and, and you put all kinds of stuff in your suitcase and you're not, you don't know if you're going to need it or not, but you take a sweater and you take an umbrella and you take a jacket and you know, all that stuff. So there's suitcase provisions in a trust that are there in case you need them. And, and a really important provision that we put in all of our trusts is the supplemental needs trust Mm -hmm. where that's a provision that it's a standby um, provision that says, you know, right now, you know, maybe all my beneficiaries are perfectly healthy and, per, you know, financially um, sound so they can receive their inheritance outright and, and then do with their inheritance what they want. But what happens if, you know, three years from now, one of my beneficiaries becomes disabled and needs to apply for some need-based government benefits? It's really critical that that trust document have some suitcase provisions or what if provisions that address that. Whereas if I have that person just named as a beneficiary on say a life insurance policy, 
there's no suitcase. There's no, there's no extra protections. Um, and so that's why trusts, you know, are such a great planning choice for beneficiary designations. So I love that. Um, so probate avoidance, you know, we talk about that, you know, we talk about that every day and we, um, you know, use that term pretty loosely, but if you would just, just for a little bit, you know, kind of dig into that a little more and say what that is and why it's important to consider avoiding probate. Sure. So I think it's important to first understand and what is probate? Right. What is that? That's the person that the executor would, or that's the process that the executor would walk through after a person has passed away. So it's that formal legal proceeding with the register of wills office following the death of an individual. Probate, kind of in a nutshell, can be really public. It can be really pricey, and it can be deadline driven. And it's something that most of our families want to avoid because they want to make things as easy as possible, as private as possible, as inexpensive as possible on the people that they leave behind. So the way I kind of put it is when you're doing a trust as part of your plan, you're kind of taking the burden of doing a bunch of the work now to save your family from having to do a bunch of work later. You may spend more to do the trust plan now, but we're going to save all of the money that it would take to get through probate later. So I don't know the exact statistic, but a majority (laughs) of our clients use trust as a foundational estate planning tool rather than a traditional simple will because they want to avoid probate. And we are going to have an entire episode on what the probate process looks like. Very rarely do we have a client who comes in and sits down and says, I want to do the least bit I can right now so that my family has to do the most later. It's usually the other way around. So we always, always, always talk to our families about probate avoidance. And if that's a goal that they want to accomplish, then we're creating the trust, we're funding the trust, we're aligning the other assets with the overall plan. And the idea is this, the trust itself is that box and it lives and it breathes and it's owning your assets. So it's got real estate in there. It's got bank accounts in there. It's got life insurance payable to it. It can have non-qualified annuities. It can have business interest. It can have personal property. So when we as individuals have died, it's as if we've died owning nothing in our individual names because it's all still in that living, breathing trust that's still owning those assets. And therefore, the Register of Wills office says, No probate because there's no assets that had to go through the estate to get to the intended heirs. The owner of the asset didn't die. Therefore, it's in the trust and it passes to the heirs out of the trust at that point, all outside of probate. Yeah, and so in talking about that, I love how you talked about all of the assets inside the box because, you know, that's what we call asset alignment. And it's really important to understand that when a person creates a trust that, you know, they not only need to have that document, but then they ne- need to take those next steps of making sure that they're looking and for assets that can be retitled, that list that you just ran through, that they get retitled in the trust name or that you're looking at beneficiary designations and when it's appropriate to actually name the trust as, as the beneficiary. And then so critical that they maintain that over time because that, you know, is one of the most frustrating things that we see in our practice that folks who have created trust years ago and whether it was with us or another attorney and we haven't heard from them for years and then unfortunately they pass away and then they have this great trust, but they have assets that they own outside it and we end up having to probate their estate anyway. Right. So, you know, I wish we could shout that from the rooftops that, you know, 
know, estate planning, it's, you know, you got to have those documents, but just as important that asset alignment and with trust planning, that is critical. It makes me think about the asset list. You know, sometimes we get resistance from our families about providing us with asset information (laughs) and we have to educate them and say, you know, we're not your financial advisor. We can't tell you how to invest your assets in the market. But what we are doing is we're creating a thorough, complete, up-to-date asset list and we use it for two reasons. And they're really important reasons. Number one, to align the assets with the plan. And then number two, to hopefully have an up-to-date asset list, which is probably the most important piece of information that a person's family is going to need after they've passed away. It also makes me think about the incredible woman we have on our team who does nothing but (laughs) asset alignment for our (laughs) clients. And she uses that asset list as like a checklist. And she just goes down the line and says, yeah, aligned, aligned, looks good. Beneficiaries up to date, retitling confirmed because we want the trust to work. And step one, signing the trust isn't going to do the trick. Right. And an empty box isn't even worth the paper it's written on. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. So hopefully our listeners can tell that we really like revocable trust. (laughs) You know, we both have them. We've created them for our parents. We've created them for all of our family members. You know, we encourage all of our clients um, to create trust. So thank you so much, Amber, for, for giving us some more detail on that. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. So from Amber and me, see you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.